Our scripture reading for this morning is from Genesis 32, verses 22 through 30, and is found on page 27 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible of your own, we would love to, for you to take this home with you from a gift from us. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Annalyn. Well, as we continue in our Genesis series this morning, let's Uh, continue by praying and asking for God to uh, just make his presence known with us. He is here uh, with us now, and we want to hear from him in his word as we uh, pursue this together. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, thank you that you love us and that you have spoken to us. And I pray now uh, that we would have ears to hear, hearts that are willing to uh, obey and follow you and um, show us how we ought to put this into practice in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you ever wrestled with God, uh, you know, questioned whether he's there, cried out to him saying, God, why are you not answering me? What are you doing in my life? Why do I feel this way? Why does it seem like my prayers go unanswered? If you've ever taken God seriously, then you have wrestled with him. If you've ever really said, I, I'm, I'm trying to discern if God is real or if he's actually at work in my life, I, I guarantee you, if you've taken him seriously in your life, there have been seasons when you have wrestled. And, and whether you find yourself this morning as, as a Christian or someone who's a bit more skeptical about this book and the God that it proclaims, or somewhere in between, I can guarantee you, if you've taken the God of the Bible seriously or even just tried to take the God of the Bible seriously. There's been seasons when you have wrestled. Difficult passages of Scripture, uh, problems in your life, circumstances in your family. And in fact, a big part of the life of faith is wrestling. Uh, Leaning into the questions, leaning into the doubts, the, the confusion, the things that we don't understand. And in fact, I want to say right from the very beginning that doubting and questioning are different than unbelief, right? Unbelief is, it's a choice, it's a decision, it's a, it's a decision of the will. But doubt, on the other hand, is a questioning, a wrestling from the standpoint of faith, from the standpoint of belief. 
And friends, if we are going to take the God of the Bible seriously, we will wrestle with him. And, and why? Why do we wrestle with God? We wrestle with God because our biggest problem is God. Our biggest problem is God. It, it's not your job. It's not your finances. It's not your relationship or, or your lack of one your family, or your health, and and I'm not making light of any of those things. Those are all significant, important, big things in our lives. But if there is a God, if he does actually exist, then he, he is our biggest problem. So as a community, as a family, we better learn how to wrestle well with him, and where better to learn that from the only one to wrestle with God face to face and live. So if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 32. Again, it's on page 27 in the Pew Bible. You can pull that out and kind of follow along as we're looking at that passage. You can pull it up on your phone. But I encourage you to take a look. Genesis chapter 32. And this is where we find the story of Jacob wrestling with God. Uh, literally wrestling with him. Or, or at least an angel or some kind of physical manifestation of God. And, you know, again, I never promised the story this morning was going to be kind of a normal average story. Many of these stories in Genesis aren't. But before we get to this actual moment of them wrestling, let's back up a little bit. Because Jacob, if you've been with us in the Genesis series, you know now Jacob is one who has been given the promise that was given to Abraham, was then given to Abraham's son Isaac, and now to Jacob. He is the one who's carrying forward the promise, the promise that God is going to use to bless the earth through his family. And for the past 20 years, Jacob has been living with his father-in-law, Laban. But there is a storm brewing in that relationship. Because in Laban, Jacob, whose name means heel grabber, Jacob the swindler, the deceiver, in Laban, Jacob has met his match. If you were with us last week, Pastor Henry walked us through how Laban tricked the trickster causing Jacob to, to marry Leah instead of Rachel and then extracting seven more years of work from Jacob before he marries Rachel. But since then, Jacob has slowly begun to get back at Laban. Jacob has gotten rich working for Laban and Laban hasn't. Laban, he's kind of a scoundrel. He has mistreated Jacob for two decades and finally Jacob knows it and if he doesn't leave, they're going to be big trouble, big problems. And Jacob, by the way, I think during this time, really has been making an effort to follow the God of the Bible, to really understand and to live according to Yahweh, the one who revealed himself to Abraham and to Isaac. But he's still Jacob. He's still a trickster. He's still a heel grabber. And so in the middle of the night, this is what he does. He just says, I'm going to run away from Laban. I'm going to flee. He and his family, his servants, all his livestock, everything that he owns, they run away in the middle of the night. They get out. Verse 20, chapter 31, and Jacob tricked Laban. And Jacob tricked Laban. He does. This is what Jacob does. He's a swindler, a trickster, but you keep on reading in chapter 31 and Laban catches up with Jacob. Now we don't have time to go into that whole story. Let me just give you the quick summary. It could have been really bad, but it actually turns out okay. They come to a place of peace. Jacob goes on with kind of Laban's blessing. 
But just as the relief of that moment is setting in for Jacob, another set of fears begin to rise. Because where is he going back to? He's going back home. Going back home where his brother, his twin brother Esau lives. (laughs) Remember Esau? Jacob and Esau are not on good terms. It's been 20 years since they've seen each other. And how did their relationship end? It ended up with Jacob tricking him out of his blessing. And Esau says, I'm going to kill my brother. Maybe you've said that to your sibling before. I don't know. I want to kill you. But Esau meant it. He was going to murder his brother. We set this up. This is another kind of Cain and Abel kind of story waiting to happen. And so Jacob is freaking out, but he's trying to fix it. First, he sends messengers ahead to his brother. Go feel him out. Is he still mad? They return and they say, Esau can't wait to see you, Jacob. And he's bringing 400 men along with him to greet you. Verse 7, then Jacob was afraid and distressed. I bet he was. Why would Esau bring along these 400 men to greet him? This is probably is not a welcoming party. This is, seems like more of a death squad. And so he divides his party into two groups, thinking, well, maybe they'll just kill half of us. (laughs) The other half of us can run away. He prays. He sends all of his wealth kind of ahead to his brother, gives him all this gifts and everything that he's been working so hard to obtain with Laban, he sends ahead to his brother because after all, what good is it if he's dead? And he hides his family on the other side of the stream. And the question hanging over the text at this point, is this the end? Is there going to be a battle? Will, will God's promise end if Jacob is killed here and his family and his descendants? And Jacob is all alone, verse 32, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. It's the middle of the night. He's all by himself, all alone, which always makes everything worse, Right? laying there, unable to sleep, thinking about life. This is the low point in Jacob's story. Jacob's at another in-between point. A few weeks ago, we saw the moment when he was fleeing to Laban from Esau, a moment alone for him in the middle of the night. Another low point and an in-between place. But this moment's even more desperate than that one. Why? Because if you remember those couple weeks ago, if you were with us, all Jacob had was a rock for a pillow. That was it. It was him and his rock. That was it. No wife, no kids, no wealth, no nothing. But now, 20 years later, he has wife, children, wealth. He has a lot more to lose in this moment. So what's going to happen? Well, like that moment, <laughs> that other in-between, that other desperate, lonely moment. God shows up. But this time, God doesn't show up and comfort Jacob. He shows up and he starts to fight him, to wrestle him. And maybe you're familiar with this story. I thought that I was as well, but it struck me afresh in studying. I sort of always thought, well, Jacob is the one who starts the fight, but, but it's not when you read the text. God comes and starts wrestling him. God's the one who starts it. Why? Because Jacob's biggest problem is God. It's not Laban. It's not Esau. It's not anyone else or anything else. His biggest problem is God. And and Jacob has been wrestling his whole life 
And, and I say that not in any kind of sense of hyperbole. Literally, Jacob has been wrestling his whole life. In fact, when you go back and read in Genesis chapter 25, when it talks about Isaac and Rebekah and she's pregnant with Jacob and Esau, this is what the narrator writes. The children struggled together within her. <laughs> Jacob has been wrestling since before he was born. I kind of picture him a little bit like this. <laughs> right? Jacob is a pro. He's Hulk Hogan. He wrestles. He wins until now. Why? Well, because God wants us to wrestle with him. He wants us to wrestle with him. That's our first lesson this morning, that God wants us to engage with him in these moments, not to draw back, but to engage. And so God comes to Jacob, and actually at first, he makes everything, it makes everything worse, and if you've begun in a relationship with God, you've maybe seen how this, this happens sometimes. God has a way of doing that. Have you ever felt that? Like, like you were just starting to really sort of get things put together in your life? You were really starting to grow in your relationship with God, that you're really starting to obey Him, uh, and then all of a sudden things just seem to get really hard. Things start to fall apart. Challenges happen. I've been there. I bet many of you have also. That's Jacob right now. God is saying, Jacob, you think your battle is with Esau. No, your battle is with me. And that's so much worse. And it's often in those lowest moments that God reminds us who it is that we are really wrestling with, that who we are really battling because the question isn't ultimately for us, how are we going to pay those bills? How are we going to put together this relationship again that's falling apart? It isn't, it isn't any of that stuff. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do next in my life. The biggest question is always this, who are you going to trust? That's the biggest question. Who are you going to trust? And in those moments of life where you are wrestling with God, are the moments when those questions, who are you going to trust, become even more vivid, more loud. And, and, and I've been there lately. A lot of you have asked me, Bill, how is it going in light of Paul's transition and all the changes that, how are you feeling? How are you doing? I would say God's really been challenging me in this, in this season with the question, who do you really trust, Bill? Who do you really trust? It's in those moments of life that, that your faith either grows or it begins to wither, where it either endures or it starts to erode. But either way, we can't just stay the same in those moments. That's the wrestling. I got an email recently this, this past week from a couple in our church, and they're wrestling right now. They're wrestling with God. He writes this. He gave me permission to share this. He just is honest. He says, a big question that we are dealing with is why is this God's plan for us? He continues, I ultimately know this is not a unique question to us and many have wondered it, but when it hits this close to home, it definitely takes on added weight. And we don't want to underestimate the power of prayer and God's plan for our life. It's just been a difficult to fully grasp everything that's been transpired over this last year. And then I love this at the end of your We wanted to give you an update and be as transparent and honest as we can. And they, they aren't just wrestling with their circumstances. They're wrestling with God. Why is this God's plan for us? 
And in my years as a pastor, you know, I've, I have prayed and cried with many people facing all different kinds of things. And in those moments, we always pray. I always pray for what they're asking for. But I also pray for the thing that we need the most. God, help us to trust you. Help us to trust you. Because that's the real battle. It always is, is who are we going to trust? That's what I mean by your biggest problem is God. He wants you to wrestle with him, not to shrink back, not to run away, but to wrestle, to engage, to cling on, to fight, to keep leaning in. Will you? Now, Jacob, he didn't have a choice. God just came at him and started fighting him, literally wrestling him. So, I mean, that's where we turn to the text. It's, it's time to rumble. Ding, ding, ding. This is round one. The match begins. There in the middle of the night, uh, uh, Jacob, he encounters someone. He doesn't, and he doesn't even know who he is until the end of this encounter, right? Just someone battling him in the dark. I mean, can you imagine that? Like you're out camping and you decide, oh, I'm, it's night. I'm going to take a walk off by myself and just look at the stars. And then all of a sudden someone just jumps you, starts fighting you. And that's what happens. That's the picture here in the text. Verses 24 and 25. And Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, and I just want to pause right there because it's almost comical at one point. It looks like it's going to be a tie. You start to wonder, does God need to get to the gym more often? Uh, and of course, I, I love this artist's depiction because this is what's really happening, right? I mean, the angel doesn't look concerned at all, right? I mean, Jacob's struggling, but he's like, I, this, you know, he doesn't look worried in the least. And, and that's the picture, right? It'd be like me trying to arm wrestle my, my three-year-old daughter, Isla. You know, it's, it's not a fair fight. It's not that she isn't tough. We call her fierce Isla. The kid is tough. But it's just not a fair fight. I mean, she could push on my arm all day. I'm not going to get tired. And so the morning comes, and this match, it's time for it to end. And so this angel, this representation of God, this warrior, he stops it with just a simple, gentle touch. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. The idea even of that Hebrew word of touch, it's a gentle touch. But right, even the most gentle and merciful touch of the Almighty God is enough to give us a limp. It completely incapacitates him. God gives him a limp, a limp that stays with him. Again, our biggest problem is God, and he wants us to wrestle with him. And this is our, our second lesson this morning, that God hands out limps. And before you judge God too harshly, sometimes a limp is exactly the thing that we need. Now, Jacob has a pattern. He's a trickster. He's a fixer. He's a manipulator. He's good at solving his own problems. Jacob gets what Jacob wants. But God is going to put an end to that pattern in his life. And now he walks with a limp. Why? Because proud people, self-sufficient people, people who solve their own problems, people like me, people like us, when we're in that mode, we don't need God. We don't need him. Of course, it's like my kids saying they don't need parents or me thinking I don't need oxygen. Right? It ends in disaster, but we live like we don't need him. Right? And I've seen this 
play out in my own life, how I try to handle things on my own, how I try to fix it myself, how I don't want to rely on other people, how I don't want to rely on God. I want to depend on myself. You know, I've always loved to research and study and learn and, and consider myself an educated, smart person. And yet increasingly, I have a limp. You know, I, I'm, I'm dyslexic. It means, you know, I don't read as quickly as others. I, I leave words out in texts and emails. It's so frustrating, so infuriating. I, I get appointments mixed up on my calendar. Like if, you, if you happen to be dyslexic, you, you know how this is and how frustrating it can be, right? But it humbles me and it forces me to depend on other people, to proofread my work, to help me with calendaring, to do this kind of stuff. It causes me to need other people. I can't be self-sufficient. Or it doesn't go well. It humbles me. And sometimes I wonder if it isn't because God knew I would be better with a limp. I'm not saying it's good. I'm certainly not saying I'm glad about it. And, and who knows, right, what God's doing in the midst of that, right? Why he does allow or doesn't allow things that he does in our lives, struggles, challenges. But I was recently reading Hebrews chapter 12, and I was struck by this. Just, this is from New Testament, verse 5, chapter 12. Do not scorn the Lord's discipline or give up when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And then I think verse 7 is so key here. Endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? That first part is so key. Endure your suffering as God's discipline. Why I love this passage is it is so clear that not every hardship, not every suffering in our life is God's punishment or is God's discipline. But the passage is inviting us to say when you face struggle, when you face trials, when you face hardship, look at it as an opportunity of, of discipline, of training, of learning, an invitation to wrestle. The reality is we will probably never know in all the fullness of why God has done this or that thing in our lives. You know, we're not promised that we'll be om omniscient <laughs> in the new heavens and new earth. We're not promised that God's going to tell us everything, right? We may never know. But the author of the book of Hebrews says, endure it as discipline. When you face trials, when you face struggles, take it as an opportunity to grow, an invitation to wrestle, to live in dependence on God in ways that you haven't before which is exactly what we were created for. Again, not every hardship, not every limp is a punishment for something that you've done wrong. And yet God gave Paul a thorn in the flesh. He gave Jacob a limp. And if you're willing to wrestle with him, he might just give you one too. And you know, it might be the very best thing for us. Maybe this week you just even reflect using that metaphor. What is, what is the limp that I need? Where is that area in my life where I'm just tended to just do it on my own? But now we're on to round two in the story. So God touches his hip, but Jacob grabs on and refuses to let go. This is why I love Jacob's tenacity. So his hip is out of joint. He can't fight anymore, but he doesn't give up. He just holds on. He can't fight back. He just clings on. I love that about him. And he says in verses 26 and 27, Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's so audacious. Hip out of joint, just clinging on. I will not let you go unless you bless me. And then verse 27, and he said to him, what is your name? What is your name? Now, this is so good. 
Why does God in this moment ask him his name? Why does he say, Jacob, what is your name? Because 20 years earlier, the last time that Jacob asked for a blessing with his father Isaac, and his father Isaac says, who are you? What is your name? What does he say? Esau. He lies. He tricks his father. What is your name? My name's Esau. And now here in this moment, pleading for another blessing, 20 years later, the question comes back again. What, Jacob, what is your name? And this time he tells the truth, but it's more than him just stating the truth of what his name is. It almost becomes a confession, right? This time he owns up to it. He owns up to not just what his name is, but to what it means. I am Jacob. I am the heel grabber, the trickster, the fleer, the runner away, or the failure. And God says no more. Verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. Israel, he who wrestles with God. Jacob's new name, the name of God's people throughout the Old Testament, the one who wrestles with God. It is an essential part of faith. And this is our, our third lesson this morning, that God names the wrestler. Right? This happens with Abraham and Sarah, where their names are changed from Abram and Sarai to Abraham and Sarah. Here, another name change. And, and this is because a name is about so much than just a, a placeholder, an identifier, but it is about who you are at your core, at your essence. It's why it's such a big deal that in the in opening chapters of Genesis that Adam is naming the animals, exercising ruling over them. We don't often think about this as deeply in our cultural context, but naming in the Bible is so profound. It tells you who you are. It defines you. Recently, I was just reminded of this, a great picture of this. I was reading our girls a book called uh, Harry Kitten and Tucker Mouse. And it's about a mouse and a cat who become unlikely friends in New York City. It's part of the Cricket in Times Square stories. And it opens with a nameless mouse. And these are the very first words of the book. This is how the book opens, the very first line. At least I could have a name, the tiny mouse said to himself. For this young mouse found that human beings didn't like him much. Some called him a rat, some called him a rodent, and one just said, yick, which sounded most unkind of all. But at least I can have a name, said the mouse. And the story continues, and he tries on a couple of names, but they, they just aren't him and, and then he begins to wonder, and there's this wondering in the story, but who was he? If he didn't have a name, he wouldn't be anyone. For a name makes a person very special. And then he finds his name, Tucker. But Tucker, he mused and repeated, Tucker Mouse. It sounds quite original. Tucker Mouse, he shouted, that's me. And now pay attention to what the author does next. This is so brilliant. So armed with his new name, the mouse marched down 10th Avenue. His name, Tucker Mouse, which he looked for so long, gave him strength, courage, gave him life. His name that he had searched for for so long, it gave him strength, courage, life. That's what happens when we find who we truly are. When God names us, when he tells us who we are, when he shows us who we are, in the midst of all of our brokenness and pain and poor choices, that there is a person that God created there in the midst, that he loves you, that he knows you, that he is redeeming you, and he gives you a new name. He calls you beloved son, beloved daughter. Friends, that's what happens in the gospel. 
You get a new name. We begin to become who we were made to be. And the things that that used to define us, shame, fear, regret, inadequacy, failure, success, money, sex, reputation, power, getting enough likes, all those things no longer define you in the gospel. Because when you wrestle with God, when you cling on to Him, when you refuse to let go, He gives you a new name. He tells you who you truly are. And if you are with Jesus, if you've placed your faith, your trust in Him, your name is loved, chosen, child of God, one who wrestles with God and prevails. This is grace upon grace. Because I love how this story ends. Because Jacob finally gets it. It finally makes sense to him. He realizes who he's been wrestling his whole life, not just in this moment, but for his whole life, his biggest problem. And he realizes he's just glad to be alive. Verse 30, for I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I should have been dead. I wrestled with God, and God didn't kill me, and that's grace. And you and I get to receive that grace because Jesus also wrestled. Not just wrestled with us, but he wrestled for us. And if you think about it, Jesus lost. He gave up his life. He succumbed to death. What looked like a defeat on the cross became the victory of the empty grave. Because here's the thing, God is not just our biggest problem. He is also our biggest and greatest solution. Just listen to Philippians chapter 2. And being found in the appearance of a man, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. But but friends, it gets even better than this. Because listen to Jesus' promise in the book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible. These are Jesus' words. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. You see, what God did for Abraham, what he did for Jacob, what he did in Jesus, he will do for you. He will give you a new name, a new identity, your true self, who you were always meant to be, to those who are victorious, to those who overcome, to those who wrestle with God and refuse to let go. So church this morning, cling to him. Cling to him and find who you truly are. Find rest in the surrender to who you truly are in him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have been at work for all these thousands of years, since Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Lord, you equip us as a community to wrestle with you well. Help us, Lord, never to let go, to always cling on until we find who we are in you, to not shrink back, to not run away, but to endure, to persevere, and in the surrender to find joy and life, the life that you intended for us. In Jesus' name we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.